now both the law firm on Sig Fonseca and the politician can you know, wash their hands and say, oh, we don't know what's going on. Take away liability from the, uh, from the underlying people who have issued the power of the attorney. We don't want to encourage that kind of behavior in our society. It's fairly clear that from what we at least know about some of the DML trail that this is a compliance failure of an epic level. And I don't think any prosecutor, if it should come to that, would consider that to be a defense. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites. I also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now with Monica Bay. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Two weeks ago, the Washington-based International Consortium of Investigative Journalists started publishing the so-called Panama Papers, a collection of more than 10 million documents leaked from the law firm Mossack Fonseca, with information on some 200,000 anonymous shell companies used by world leaders, politicians, uh, and various others, including the Prime Minister of Iceland, whose name I'm not going to start to pronounce. I just wondered whether you were going to try and pronounce that. (laughs) Sigmir David Gunlogson. In any event, just this month, the German newspaper announced that 11.5 million confidential documents from back in 1970 to 2015 have been leaked from the firm to journalists. These so-called Panama Papers revealed how clients hid billions of dollars in offshore tax shelters. There are many issues at hand here, establishing these offshore entities, evading taxes, laundering money, fraud, and overall corruption, sure to be an interesting thing for a long time to come. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the Panama Papers and some of the legal implications. They raise shell companies, offshore bank accounts, the issues of data security, tax evasion, investigations, and even the implications for the law firm Mossack Fonseca. Bob, our first guest to help us with that today is Jessica Tolipman. She is the Assistant Dean for Field Placement at George Washington Law School. Jessica is an expert in corruption, government ethics, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. She is a senior editor of the FCPA blog, which has been following the Panama Papers and all of the revelations that flow from it. You can follow her blog at fcpablog.com. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. Thank you for inviting me. And also joining us today is Professor William Burns, a member of the law faculty and an associate dean with Texas A&M University School of Law. William Burns held a senior position at an international tax for a big six firm and has been commissioned to consult on fiscal policy by a number of governments. He's written many books and articles and is currently developing a tax legal risk management online curriculum for professionals. He writes the blog Burns Tax and Compliance blog at profwilliamburns.com and also writes the International Financial Law Prof blog, part of the uh, Law Professor Blogs Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, William Burns. Hey, 
thank you for focusing on this really important topic of the Panama Papers. It's a really interesting topic for sure. William, maybe we could start with you and, and just ask what exactly are the Panama Papers about and what's the big deal? Why are they drawing so much attention? What the Panama Papers, why it's really exciting. It's, it's not the first time that we've had a major leak. Y'all won't know this name, but there is the big Portacolis leak, which was uh, a couple years ago, and it was several million documents. There was the HSBC leak, UBS leak, and, and of course, the Lux leaks. They've all been really exciting, when I say exciting, at least for the you know academics who are engaged in research and for government prosecutorial officials that, uh, that Jessica talks with a lot, perhaps not exciting for the people named in the papers. But uh, this one is so exciting because it's 40 years of, of history that traces back almost year for year captured legacy information. It's really incredible that this that this should be, it's like finding a King's Tut tomb for a historian. And it's just a really rare circumstance. And what's inside of it that makes it so interesting? Well, going back to, uh, you know, letters, faxes, and of course, um, emails in our, you know, in our modern history of the last, let's say, 15, 20 years, this law firm uh, was probably the largest or second to largest uh, law firm operating in this uh, foreign incorporation service area. Now, according to the news reports, we now have, according to in these documents, 14,000 clients of the law firm have been potentially exposed and uh, in, in over 100,000, 200,000 of their companies and, uh, and over, you know, uh, you know, literally millions and millions of documents associated with that. It's a lot of data. It's going to take literally years to comb through this data and really connect the dots. And when you take this Panama paper data and you match it to the data from the Porticolis leak and the HSBC leak and the UBS leak and in all the other leaks, plus the new information that governments are going to start getting next year pursuant to the common reporting standards uh, in the United States. We call that FATCA, F-A-T-C-A, FATCA. It's going to create a window into like Wonderland. Alice is, we're going to see a window into a land that government agencies and regulators have for far too long not had a real clear picture of. It's like looking through a real smoky filtered mirror and all of a sudden having it wiped clean and being able to see clearly or getting that new 2020 prescription spectacles and you can all of a sudden see for the first time in your life. I've, I've had this experience recently. So um, it's, it's really exciting for Jessica's world also because I'm thinking from the tax perspective, of course, Jessica is thinking from the corruption and so forth perspective. I'd, I'd like to hear what she thinks about the papers. And Jessica, can you also comment for us on who are the perpetrators of this? Who are the group of journalists and what connections do they have around the world with any governmental entities who are very interested in this information? Well, if we're talking first about the leak, we don't know the identity of the leaker. If it's an individual, if it's a group of individuals, we know at this point that this has been held confidential for obvious reasons. There's a lot of important people implicated in the leak, and if the identity of this individual were to be exposed, that could cause serious problems for that person's life or livelihood, um, probably life. But as far as the journalists, I mean, this is, it's interesting that they seem to go to, to non-U.S. journalists for this quote-unquote leak or expose, um, and it's a consortium of journalists from around the world that are able to report on these stories. 
What I find fascinating, though, is that because of the international reporting, the magnitude, the scope of the reporting, you've seen quite a reaction in many countries, like we've seen in Iceland. Um, and again, I'm not going to pronounce the, the, <laughs> the name as well, um, with the former leader stepping down. Um, you've seen this in, in numerous countries. There's pressure in, in Ukraine. There's been pressure on um, David Cameron in the U.K. What I find fascinating is while there's been so much openness globally in certain areas like China, it's been restricted. This information has been banned from Chinese websites. So, you know, their citizens don't have access to the same amount of information. So I think we're seeing a global reaction from the citizens of these countries, from opposition parties, from creditors, from potentially spouses that may have had assets hidden from them, from prosecutors. But you're not going to see it in certain countries that believe in censorship. It seems like the biggest thing we're seeing out of this uh, so far is is just how extensively uh, these shell companies are being used and for uh, the various types of reasons they're being used. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with the companies using shell companies like this? Why should we be concerned about this? Well, there are some legitimate reasons, and, and William may be able to come, come at it from a, maybe a tax perspective or go into some of the reasons why companies... Um, or used offshore anonymously in certain cases. But for the most part, it's a really wonderful way for um, criminals to launder their funds, hide illicit assets for, you know, drug dealers, mobsters to hide their money. Um, It's a great way for um, individuals that are um, sanctioned on sanction lists or blacklist globally to continue to conduct business without having international regulators watching them. It's a great way, like I said before, for people trying to hide from creditors to conceal funds. It's a good way for people that are trying to hide assets in a divorce to conceal funds. So there's a variety of reasons why people can use this, because once you enter this illicit system, and again, it's not always illicit, but sometimes it can be, once you enter this kind of shadowy world of anonymous shell corporations, it's very, very easy to disguise the ownership of companies, to disguise the ownership of certain assets, to hide funds from people that really either deserve to see them or want to see them. And so overall, it's been a good way for people for many, many decades to conceal this money and, and, and this information. But can I just ask on that point, when you say the word illicit, I mean, it's not in and of itself unlawful to have a shell company. Is it the purposes for which you have the shell company, or are there cases in which the company itself or the structure is itself unlawful? You're correct. It's not illegal itself to have one of these companies. It's when you're using these companies to conceal illicit funds um, that can cause a problem. Um, Not necessarily in the setting up of the company. Again, it could be perfectly legal in the jurisdiction in which you're establishing the company. The problem, again, you're dealing with sometimes money laundering with perhaps you are a corrupt politician in a country that's known for corruption, and you've embezzled funds from your government, and you're now stashed them into some offshore company that can't disclose the owner because through a series of transactions, you've hid your ownership, which is quite easy to do in many of these countries. That is a problem of of itself. It's the underlying criminal conduct. And what we're seeing in many instances is that firms like Mossack Fonseca have essentially aided companies and individuals that have tried to conceal illicit assets. They don't do any due diligence or minimal due diligence on the people that are trying to establish these companies. So it's this lack of due diligence to look into who these people are, where these funds are coming from. That's so problematic. And also some of the information that's come out where they, you know, backdate information or alter certain documents in order to comply with certain regulations is also certainly problematic. 
Well, William, wouldn't the law firm in Panama have what's essentially the Nuremberg defense? You know, we just did what we were told. What obligations did they have to undertake the due diligence that Jessica's talking about? So, and this raises, and this is a point that a lot of people are missing about Panama. And so I, I think this will be uniquely the first time it's described right here on your show. Panama has this quirk in its civil law system, which allows a corporation to the directors of the corporation who are authorized to you know, operate on behalf of a company to issue a power of attorney. Now, that's normal. We, we, we have that in the United States, of course, to issue a power of attorney. But the quirk in their law allows the corporation's directors not to be responsible in law for the actions of the power of attorney. Now, in the United States, of course, if a company issues a power of attorney and the, the power of attorney acts nefariously or uh, commits wrong, money laundering, any number of things, civil liability, the corporation is on the hook and, and the directors can be on the hook if you pierce the corporate veil. But in Panama, not so. Um, so Monsignor Fatsake, as you said, that you know they, they pulled a uh, – we just told to do it, the Nuremberg defense or what have you. Under their legal system in Panama, they would claim – that it's and they helped write the law, of course. <laughs> so they would state that uh, well, it's we, not only don't we have a uh, a requirement to diligence. This would be their argument. Certainly, from the past, we didn't have a requirement to diligence the clients. But we, because of these powers of attorneys, we don't know what's going on at all. Now, you and I and most Western world, you know, most people would say that's poppycock and we would hold the corporation and they're the directors and in this case, the company secretary and that's this law firm responsible for the actions of the power of attorney. Why do I bring that up? Well, who are the power of attorney? So I would say specific country, uh, there's been a lot of reports about a particular you know, well-known global leader and that he's not named in the documents, but an associate, a musician associate of his, is named in the documents, and that musician associate's worth a billion dollars, and somehow there may be a connection between. That's the stories to go. One could look in The Guardian for it. So what I suspect is really going on, though, is that the company has issued, or companies in that case, have issued power of attorneys to the politician in question or the politician's closer associates who are acting on behalf of the company, setting up bank accounts, entering into transactions, these contracts. And now both the law firm, Monsig Fonseca, and the politician can you know, wash their hands and say, oh, we don't know what's going on because there are these, you know, the ghost, the power of attorney is doing it. And who's the power of attorney? That's a real challenge that's going on in Panama, that that practice really does need to be stopped. And it's not the power of attorneys are bad, but when powers of attorneys can be used in a way to take away liability from the, uh, from the underlying people who have issued the power of attorney, we don't want to encourage that kind of behavior in our society. Well, and Jessica, the Mossack itself was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and the firm leaders said that they made mistakes and so does our compliance department, but that's not the norm. So our, your statement, I guess, that they don't have any compliance or due diligence seems to be belied by what they're saying. But what do you know about what it is they, in fact, do check? 
Well, I don't think we know very much, and it doesn't sound like they check very much from what's at least been publicly released. By any measure of evaluation, um, it's a failure of a compliance program if they're trying to suggest that they have a robust and or even remotely effective compliance program. Internationally, there's now a global standard for companies, banks, et cetera, in setting up a compliance program and what it should do, how it should comply with laws and regulations, how it should comply with anti-corruption laws and other requirements. And by any stretch of the imagination, even if they're complying technically, as William suggested, with certain laws to ensure the privacy of their clients, it's fairly clear that from what we at least know about some of this email trail, that this is a compliance failure of an epic level. And I don't think any prosecutor, if it should come to that, would consider that to be a defense. You know, we hear all the time about uh, enhanced enforcement all around the world of anti-corruption laws, as you just mentioned. What do these papers tell us, if anything, about the effectiveness uh, of those laws or to the extent to which uh, they're being complied with? They don't tell us too much when it comes to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is a law that prohibits the bribery of of foreign government officials. Um, And we know that the U.S. passed this law in the late 70s, and in the intervening decades, we've seen other countries pass similar laws. And at least in the past decade, five to ten years, we've seen renewed efforts to increase enforcement globally. So we know that this is occurring, and this has been quite successful from both a prosecutorial standpoint. We're not only seeing the U.S. taking the lead in this, but we're seeing other countries start to similarly enforce these actions. Um, But we're also seeing companies react to this in a way in which they're developing more robust international compliance programs. So overall, it's been remarkably successful in in changing corporate culture to a certain extent. Uh, But what this is showing is the limitations to that. We've seen that at least some of the names of companies that have settled FCPA actions have connections with companies whose names have been leaked as part of this giant leak of information. Whether or not that leads to anything is we don't know, but we, at least we know there's a connection. What I find more interesting is that there is a limitation to these international anti-corruption laws. So the FCPA and laws similar to it prohibit the bribery of foreign government officials. What they don't allow is the prosecution of the actual government officials that have accepted the bribes. So what I find interesting about this leak is that it may expose what some of these officials who have accepted these corporate bribes are doing with the money. So that could be a potential outlet for maybe local politicians or local governments or local prosecutors to maybe eventually have the key that they need to prosecute the corrupt officials that have been accepting bribery. Because what we're seeing in these countries is that the companies that pay the bribes get prosecuted and the officials that accept the bribes, nothing happens to them. Um, And in fact, these are the individuals that are defrauding their countries, the countries that need to have the services and goods be above board and provided to them in the way that they should have been procured. So what's interesting to me is that we may actually now see a connection between the funds that have been paid to these um, individuals and and where the money's actually been going. It's possible. Again, we don't know that yet. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to have to take a short break. Stay with us and we will be back after these words from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. 
And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams, and with us today is Jessica Tolipman and William Burns. In our last segment, we've been discussing the Panama Papers. And what sequence do you see happening here, William? From what I understand, there is going to be a big cross-referencing that comes out in May, along with a listing of all the individuals. The website put up by the journalists seems to be extremely detailed so far with the names of particular leaders across practically every major country in the world, along with the names, the very names of the companies that they set up. What more are we going to learn? Well, I've already started to cross-list. So I've been uh, studying. So there's something called the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, FATCA, in the United States. And that requires all foreign financial institutions and intermediaries to register with the IRS to obtain, let's call it a compliance number to, to keep it simplistic. It's a GIIN, a, a global identification number. This GIN. And by registering, they are certifying that they are going to, for purposes of the United States tax system, fess up when there is an ultimate beneficial United States account holder or owner of a company. And so, of course, when the first list of thousands and thousands of names of corporate names and directors was published. Um, I downloaded it, and then I ran a check against the list from the IRS list that one can download every month, what we call this GIN list. And I found so far, you know, just a cursory uh, inspection, I found many, over 35 cross-referenced corporate names. So these are corporations, and of course, Monsake Fonseca itself. So these are corporations and then the firm itself who are stating that they are, as of this year, that's 2016, going to inform the IRS of their underlying United States account holders and underlying U.S. owners of business associations, corporate entities. So that begs the question, is Monsake Fonseca telling the truth? And I think that it's going to these papers, these, you know, two trillion <laughs> bytes of information. I think they're going to help the IRS from a verification perspective to determine whether this firm in particular, this one Panamanian firm, but all these other corporations that it's dealt with are in fact providing the United States that information. Now, of course, other governments, as I said, next year have this common reporting standard, CRS. It's the same thing as FACA, just globalized, being handled through the uh, OECD. And they're going to do the same check. They're going to take their data. They're going to compare it against all the other data they have from the other leaks and this new CRS data. And it's going to be really difficult starting next year, especially with artificial intelligence programs and software, for 
nefarious criminals. And when I say nefarious, I'm not just talking the corruption in Jessica's world, but this is, you know, in today's world, that means tax evasion. So it's going to be very difficult for them to commit the crime in the first place, the tax evasion in the first place, to get to the second place of then, you know, benefiting from the proceeds of their crime, the money laundering side of this. It's um, a brave new world for the criminal. Jessica, what do these papers tell us, if anything, about the complicity of financial institutions in this kind of international shell game of hiding assets and, and laundering money? Is there some responsibility of due diligence on their part with respect to these shell companies? Well, there's certainly a responsibility on the part of financial institutions to do due diligence. Um, they also have certain reporting requirements that they have to comply with. Again, the presence of these shell companies or these anonymous shell companies can oftentimes make some of these things difficult, but they do have due diligence obligations themselves. What we've seen, at least in recent years with exposés, there's been amazing work done by organizations like Global Financial Integrity, Global Witness, and Transparency International that have been calling for an end to these anonymous shell companies because they have been so successful in shielding criminals from liability, particularly those that engage in corruption, tax evasion, money laundering, etc. What we're seeing is that the role of banks and indeed lawyers can't be underplayed. We see this time and time again that they have been quite complicit in assisting in many of these transactions. Uh, recently on 60 Minutes, there was an expose involving where 60 Minutes worked with the organization Global Witness. They sent an individual that had connections to a, a fake minister in Africa where, you know, if you are even slightly familiar with the red flags of corruption, was describing what could be seen as a minister in Africa that had stolen funds um, and that was trying to find a way to essentially conceal the funds in the U.S. and make purchases in the U.S. Um, after concealing these funds. And they went to a dozen lawyers or so and basically to see if they could get assistance with this. And only one attorney really turned them away. The rest seemed willing to listen and even potentially work with this individual that was so quite clearly bringing to them a scheme that involved red flags of corruption, um, willing to work with them potentially to set up or assist them in setting up shell companies to hide this illicit funding. So it's quite interesting in, to including see. Including a former that, ABA president, which was kind of interesting. That is true, yeah, a former <laughs> ABA president. And the ABA had to come out with a statement disavowing it. And um, <laughs> it's been quite embarrassing. But it was pretty shocking, especially since it's a legal talk show, as you know. It was pretty shocking to see what these attorneys, what their response were. And everyone was really proud to see one attorney. The stats in that investigation were quite uh, dismal, to say the least. But at the end of the day, um, it really does show the role that both lawyers, banks, and other intermediaries play in facilitating these types of transactions. What kind of criminal penalties are we going to be looking at here in the United States and potentially across the world, if you have any idea? We have some acts that are applicable that we've talked about today. Or are there any criminal aspects to those? Right now, we don't. It's impossible to know. Um, right now, what you're going to see, regulators looking to connect the dots. You know, what's interesting is that most of the things we're going to see were actually probably legal. Um, if you're going to look at it from the standpoint of setting up these entities, you're going to see that a lot of times. Um, the way that these are established, they fall in kind of gray areas of the law. So you may not ever see prosecutions for um, probably a majority of the individuals that have been exposed by this leak. What will be interesting is whether or not the, I'd say, investigators in the United States, regulators, take a look at the connection to any type of crime so they may be able to connect the dots to something like money laundering, which is a criminal law in the United States, tax evasion, which can be criminal, um, whether there's corruption involved, the fraud, even something like the violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Oftentimes we see that 
companies will funnel payments to foreign officials through shell companies, so that's possible. We could see a connection there. Um, We'll even see something from um, other countries that are also looking into these allegations, or at least the leak right now, to see if they can find connections. But it's hard to tell at this point because right now they're just dealing with raw data. William, as Jessica mentioned earlier, the uh, notion that there's been a call for getting rid of these kinds of shell companies and requiring at least the beneficial owners of these companies to be identified. What do you see here in terms of the need for legal reform coming out of these papers? It's going to happen that the beneficial owners and the actual directors, like as I mentioned, this power of attorney hide and seek game, that they're all going to be in corporate registries. With FATCA and CRS, they already have to be reported starting this year with FATCA and starting next year with CRS to the treasuries. Not doing that is already a violation of law. However, that's the tax side of it. For the criminal investigation side of it, these registries, the company registries, are going to be accessible. And this is what European Union is calling for. And I suspect it's going to go through on a real-time basis. So it's not an annual, you know, send us an Excel spreadsheet. It's, it's really XMS and they upload it, but whatever. You know, it's not, it's not going to be the annual data dump. It's going to be a real-time accessible. And, and then the question is whether it's going to be accessible to the public or not. So it's one thing to have what we call FIUs, the uh, intelligence units at each uh, domestic government. Even Panama has one of those. Every country in the world has this FIU. Like here would be our um, attorney general in the United States. And they have access, obviously, to the potential access to U.S. records. Of course, we all know that that's a myth, and they don't have access to, by example, the Delaware beneficial owners. And that's a huge um, challenge for the rest of the world um, because they state that we, the rest of the world, are trying to clean up this mess, and you, the United States, are actually the one that's perpetuating it. And as a little country like Panama, we can take care of them, but hey, the United States is really putting in the roadblocks. So that's one interesting challenge. Then, um, But we haven't mentioned yet suspicious activity reports or what they call overseas suspicious transaction reports. Financial intermediaries, including Monsek Faseca, are required by law in every country in the world to file when they have an incidence that they think rises to a suspicious activity. And that doesn't mean criminal. It doesn't mean necessarily criminal. It means the potentiality of criminality. So it's suspicious. You have to, by law, file a suspicious activity report with, in the United States, it would be FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Network. And now in some countries like the United Kingdom, lawyers also have that requirement to file. In the United States, lawyers don't have the requirement to file a suspicious activities report, but they do have to file currency transaction reports if they receive cash from their clients in excess of $10,000. And attorneys in the United States have been prosecuted. If you remember the very famous case in Florida of Al Gore's attorney for the election, and he was really drugged through the mud and prosecuted criminally very aggressively for defending, in his case, he was defending Colombian drug lords. But regardless, I won't go into that case, but uh, it's an interesting case um, to look up. So one possibility to come out of this is that attorneys will be required to file, not just in the UK, but globally, suspicious activity reports on their clients. And of course, the US attorneys will say attorney-client privilege, yada, yada. But the UK also has attorney-client privilege and has managed to work through those issues 
to a point where there is a peace between the bar and the government investigatory. And, you know, you may side on one side or the other. So you're going to have access to the beneficial ownership information on a real-time basis, at least for the regulatory authorities, possibly for the public. And secondly, I think you're going to see law firms being required going forward, maybe from 2017 in most countries, maybe not the U.S., maybe we'll drag our feet again, just like we do on the beneficial ownership information. But for most countries of the world, law firms will start to be required to file suspicious activity reports on their clients. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, and we'd like to take this moment to invite our guests to share their final thoughts as well as their contact information. So, Jessica, let's start with you. Wrap it up, and and please give us your contact information. Sure. Thank you for having me today. I think this is a fascinating topic, um, but I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. I think we are ready to see what else stems and flows from this amazing leak of information. You can reach me through my Twitter handle, which is jtillipman. You'd have to learn how to spell my name um, to figure that out, too. But it's J-T-I-L-L-I-P-M-A-N, and that's my Twitter handle. And you can also check out my blog, where I'm a senior editor, the FCPA blog, fcpablog.com. Thanks. And William? Jessica and I are both academics doing a lot of research on these issues. She primarily from the political corruption, myself from the uh, tax and tax evasion. So feel free to Google me, William Burns. My last name is spelt, I say Irish, B-Y-R-N-E-S. I have plenty of contact details online, and if you're interested in this uh, topic from a research perspective, send me your research or, or uh, let's talk and see uh, about opportunities for collaboration. Well, thanks a lot. We've been talking with Jessica Tillotman, Assistant Dean for Field Placement at George Washington Law School and Senior Editor of the FCPA blog, and with William Burns, member of the Law Faculty and an Associate Dean at Texas A&M University School of Law. Thanks to both of you for your time and insights on this topic today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you kindly. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the show. This is Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.